one of the mistakes corporates make when they want to be innovative is they're like, we're going to put in an innovation program. We're going to be innovative. Well, if you're innovative everywhere, you're by definition innovative nowhere. Because to be innovative, I have to think differently. And if I don't have a mental or physical space that I can go to to think differently, I cannot, in fact, be different. So saying I'm innovative at my cube doesn't cut it. What you need is um, at Rackspace, they created Racktivity rooms. And at Society General, they created special rooms where you could go and you would have the materials for innovation games and you could play. But now I had a space I could leave my cube where I'm you know, optimizing and doing my thing. I go to this other space and now the rules are different mm. because the space is different. Mm. Today's episode is brought to you by Exige International. Exige is an executive search and recruitment training business that Fiona and myself have been working on for the last 19 years. We provide technology and innovation-focused executives to the insurance and wider financial services sector with a focus on the UK and Swiss markets. If you have a search or you'd like to discuss improving your recruitment and interviewing process, please visit our website, Exige International. Exige is spelt E-X-I-G-E. And tell the team William sent you. I'm also very happy to introduce our new sponsor, Crankhouse Coffee. Crankhouse Coffee is run by Dave Stanton, producing some of the UK's most exciting coffees, available for dispatch all over Europe. With a host of single origin and hard-to-find coffee, expertly roasted with care and attention, Crankhouse Coffee is a true gem of a business. I've been drinking this coffee for years, and I am thoroughly happy to have them as a sponsor of the show. So just head over to crankhousecoffee.co.uk, that's crankhousecoffee.co.uk, and you can use the code William to receive a special discount. In today's episode, I interview Luke Homan. Luke has written the wonderful and groundbreaking work on game-based innovation called Innovation Games. Luke has also been a key part of the Agile community, and his thinking and expertise I have found to be extremely valuable. Luke is that rare mix of both challenging and supportive, such important qualities in a leader. Luke is currently working on his latest company, Tilladen. It's a fantastic idea, so I hope you enjoy, and without further ado, I give you Luke Homan. Luke Homan, welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> Luke, um, for all of those out there who don't know Luke Homan, you really should, but I'm going to sort of give you a bit of an overview of his resume. So Luke, you're an ex-professional ice skater, junior gold medalist winner, I believe. You're a three-time author, pioneering gamification and innovation through the most excellent book, Innovation Games. Really, guys, you should get that one. You've been instrumental in helping Agile move beyond just Kanban and Scrum and deal with things outside of the normal Agile processes. You've founded, at my count, four companies, sold your last one, Contenio, I believe, and you're now the creator of a new one, Tilladen. Um, but most importantly, you're a father to four children, I believe, as well. And I hear on the grapevine, Luke, 
that you make the best margarita in the world as well. That's what I hear. <laughs> yes, I do. And um, I, I will post my margarita recipe, which is blazingly simple um, uh, online, but it's uh, one ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice, um, one ounce of agave nectar. It's, it has to be pure agave nectar. Nice. And two ounces plus a splash of super premium tequila. I've probably four or five bottles of tequila at home right now. <laughs> and because I, I do love tequila. Um, and um, a, some variations are a splash of Cointreau. Um, mm. And if you want to put a little kick into it, um, you can muddle some jalapenos. Ooh. into the drink which is gives it that little like spicy feel um and uh and my my wife quite likes it with the with a little bit of the uh the spicy feel with the jalapenos but yes i make fantastic margaritas <laughs> that sounds awesome my god i've never wanted to drink a margarita so much at five o'clock on a thursday <laughs> so that's um that's fantastic to hear um What's your favorite tequila? Just staying on, on this route for a minute. What's your favorite brand? Oh, that's like asking me my favorite innovation game. Um, uh, <laughs> different tequilas in different contexts. In fact, I was low on tequila. So I just went out and bought like four bottles this weekend. So um, <laughs> Four bottles is just enough, right, for the weekend. There we go. Yeah. Well, you know, it'll you know, <laughs> last a week or so. Um, so I bought a bottle of Casamingos, which is George yeah. Clooney's tequila, tequila, which is very good. I bought a bottle of... Uh, San Matisse, which is an Añejo uh, sipping tequila. I bought wow. a bottle of Corzo, which is another Blanco or, or clear tequila, which is also very good for mixing. And then um, I bought a bottle of Don Julio 1942, which is a another sipping uh, tequila. Oh my and God. so um, some some of the tequilas you use for drinks and some you use for just... Um, uh, and you know, sipping with dessert, slowly pickling yourself. Yeah, I can, I can get yes. that. I'm, 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 I'm not a big drinker, but um, I do love tequila, and it's my birthday on Saturday, and um, my wife had just ordered a bottle of uh, Casamigos, actually the um, Resperando one, I think, because um, yeah, that's a good one. Ah, oh, it's just so good. It's so lovely. So that that will be a, a good Saturday night, I think, just to enjoy that. Well, there you go. I didn't was expecting to go that route there. So we've got a margarita recipe in already, and some great recommendations. So um, awesome. So um luke really i i suppose i i want to dive off because you've got such a wide varied career like i mentioned you've done like ice skating you've gone and done stuff in the agile community you're starting companies up and all of this sort of good stuff so but i, I kind of want to just get to know you a bit more really and and one thing in our previous conversations you introduced me to this really short cool short essay um about living like a weasel so um what does for those of the out there who've never heard this what does living like a weasel mean well, um, when I was uh, 17 and I was making some choices in life about, you know, do I want to go to school, university? Do I want to keep skating and see how far I could go? I ran across this essay from Ann Dillard called Living Like Weasels. And it's a beautifully written essay. So any description that I give of it is always feels unfair because it is so beautifully written. Um, but basically, uh, she was walking by a pond and uh, saw a weasel and they kind of, their eyes connected, if you will. And sometimes that happens with animals, right? You kind of mm. look them in the eye. And, and she talked about how um, and a wild animal lives by instinct 
And the instinct of a weasel is that it attacks its prey, but the weasel can't let go unless either the prey dies or the or the weasel dies because of there's a there's a tendon in the jaw of the weasel. And so her her essay basically says, can you live like a weasel? Can you attack or latch into something until you know you're so focused that that's what you do? And so um, at the impressionable young age of 17, I decided to live like a weasel. And so when I lock into something, I kind of lock in. And what I've learned is that if you bite something hard enough, eventually it'll bite you back. <laughs> and and so people often would say to me, um, uh, uh, where are you taking innovation games? And I'd say, well, actually, I think it's where innovation games are taking me. And uh, you know, where are you taking agile? And I'm like, wow, that's kind of presumptuous. And, and isn't it? It's more, where is agile taking me? And going to the things that I've done in my career about agile, I am quite comfortable and have been quite comfortable finding the, the edges or the white space and then jumping into the edge in the white space um, and trying to bridge communities. So uh, I was very proud that I was the person who who created the first Agile product management track at the Agile conference. Um, I was also proud that I went to the Product Development and Management Association and started speaking there and the Qualitative Research Consultants Association and started to talk there and trying to find these areas of white space and, and bring them together. Um, and and that, to me, that's what living like a weasel is. You, you bite into something, you, you latch into it, you get... And you and you hang on, and then, um, and then eventually you let it go. So, so like I've sold, I've started companies, I've sold companies, um, um, I've written books. Um, but then you know you 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 build on the past, but it shouldn't hopefully uh, overly define you or constrain you. Yeah, that's an interesting idea that you know the the, the thing that you're working on ends up you know giving you feedback as well, and that's part of innovation, part of part of any of the the work we do when we're creating things i, I want to come back to innovation a bit later if By we way, can. I think that, uh, let's let's jump into that for a second okay, about the creation process and innovation it's okay to start something and you know we all know the in the community we all know the s-shaped curve of adoption right i build something through feedback and then i launch it and it, and it starts up the s-shaped curve of adoption hmm. what i find is that um the first few releases after launch are still kind of the overhang of the entrepreneur's ideas about what should be done. And the successful entrepreneurs, you know, we, you know, in cool kid language, you know, the cool kids call it a pivot or, you know, they do other things. But the reality is, is what's happening is after you launch and you're up that S-shaped curve, if you keep going up the curve, it's because you've stopped leading and started listening. And so there is a, there's people get it wrong. They're like, Oh, I have to listen to my customers every step of the way. Well, that's not quite true. Cause sometimes they don't know what they need. And your job is to identify the problem and help them create a solution. But once that solution starts to take root in the market, well, then you have to kind of invert the relationship and, and start to listen. And it's a very hard thing for teams to do to transition from the leading to the listening and Sometimes that's why you find that people who are good at leading aren't good at listening and people who are good at listening aren't good at leading. It's just there's slightly different skills and, and making that transition is, is, is part of, 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 of the growth of the, um, of the solution or the enterprise. 
which part do you prefer, Luke? The leading or the listening? Um, gosh, I don't know. Um, it that's kind of like asking if someone thinks they're handsome, right? I mean, they're like, of course I think I'm handsome. <laughs> I'm not, but I think I am. <laughs> my mom will tell you that I am. Yeah, my, yeah, my mom. Will, yeah. Um, so. I think that, um, you know, and, and of course we're biased, right? So I love listening when it's what I want to hear. And I love leading when people listen to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I've seen some good questions to know because I, I think, I think you're right about listening. It's bloody hard actually listening and uh, particularly when you hear things you don't, you don't want to hear. Um, but, um, it's interestingly for me, I think where so much of the great feedback comes is when you can just learn to yeah, ask questions and listen, right? Listening and learning. It's just such a fundamental skill to getting great quality conversations. So, um, I mean, it's good to hear you say that because actually my, my own experience, we created a training product here at Exige and it's called Found and part of that was a board game. And I, I, I recently posted it out for the first time. And, it, and that moment of posting it out was actually a real reflection moment for me because the most fun I had was creating the idea. <laughs> then sort of uh, the, the actual coming up with the idea, then actually making the board game, funny enough, was actually a little bit less fun because it was a lot of process and various stuff. Then selling it was less fun again. And then posting it out was definitely the least fun thing I could have right, possibly right, done with it. Right. And it's like you, you get these diminishing returns, at least, as some I'm feeling. And then that S-curve you talk about, I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen. And it's probably going to come when I get the feedback and I've got to change it again to come up with new ideas. And then again, it goes through that iteration. So I think also recognizing where you're good at it and where you're bad at it is probably also something that enables you to keep going again. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is it... Well, I think, I think if you buy into the idea in the human resource field, and I do lately uh, buy into this notion of what is called a T-shaped person. And the idea of a T-shaped person is that there's a common set of process knowledge and skills that we all share. And then there's deep expertise that I bring to the team. And then the team becomes strong when we organize the team to have a collection of T-shaped people. So practically, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, when I construct agile teams, I tend to work in um, uh, enterprise web-based software development, right? So the, the kind of kind of the team that I find productive is a minimum of four people. I need someone who is pretty skilled at data modeling and and you know on the data side. I need at least one full stack engineer to kind of help make sure we've got the right APIs and the right kind of message driven architecture. We need someone who is good at um, user experience and uh, visual design. Um, and then we need someone who's good at the actual, you know, user interface um, widget level programming, you know, like click this button, make this animation occur you know, you know, move this around. So there, you know, there is no one person who has all those skills. Mm. Um, and, and I think that actually part of the, part of the opportunity of attending a university or part of a young person taking uh, an internship or apprentice is to get a little bit of experience in all those areas. So you can kind of figure out what you really do like to do the most. Like, where do you, you know, where do you find 
you know, what part of the T is the, is the part that goes down where you have the, the deeper expertise. So if we buy into this notion that agile teams are comprised of T-shaped people, then it stands to reason that you're a T-shaped person too. And, and if you're a T-shaped person, then, you know, you know, maybe we all need a little bit of leading and listening, but to your point, maybe I'm a little better at leading or a little better at listening. I'm, I think I'm probably a, if I had to pick, I'm probably a little bit more comfortable on the uh, leading side only because I I'm personally comfortable with high degrees of ambiguity, which a uh, startup CEO has to have. You have to be able to be very, very comfortable with the, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hypothesis, but I don't know. Um, and, and I'm figuring it out. And in some cases it's not, it, it's, it's, I don't even have the hypothesis. I'm just, you know, wallowing around in this area. Mm. Um, you know, and, and exploring things. Hmm. So, um, uh, uh, so, so it, those kind of all kind of swirl together to say, like, how do we create a better outcome for the, for the group? Yeah, I hear that. I hear that actually. And I think um, I was recently listening to a podcast on behavioral genetics and this idea that so much of what we can achieve and, and be and do in our life is pre-programmed because of our, you know, kind of ideal genetic potential. And um, they've done lots of sort of identical twin studies to show how similarly outcomes of personality are even when you're separated uh, a birth from a sort of a genetically identical twin and i can i can sort of see how that really feeds into i look as a, as a, someone who who picks people out for roles so much it's kind of crazy this idea that we wouldn't recognize that we have genetic potential or <clears throat> like you say this sort of t-shape and um so many of the people that i see in these entrepreneurial roles are people who are really interested by learning. And that's where I come to the ambiguity component that you just mentioned, that the blank page represents immense opportunity, not a horrendous black hole of despair um, where you've got to figure stuff out. As some people who you're an optimizer would think, right? So it's like, what the hell, what can I do with that? Um, so yeah, I can burn it maybe. Um, so great. I mean, it's really interesting to think about the team setup. You mentioned something about a four-person team in the Agile community. Is that like a minimum four-person? Do you, do you have a maximum amount of people you'd want to have in your team? Well, the specific example for me is four because I just find four to be a really good number. Um, Jeff Sutherland in the Agile community is starting to publish some data that it's somewhere between five and six. And so since we don't have partial people, we should either pick five or six. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, the organizational behavior has long, and I wrote about this way back, you know, almost 25 years ago in my first book, uh, Journey of the Software Professional, right? We know from studies in organizational behavior for a very long time that pretty much the maximum size of a team for human collaboration is somewhere around eight to 10 people. Um, if you have more than 10 people, um, it's a broadcast model. And people just don't deeply collaborate. And we've known this for, 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 for thousands of years. I mean, if you look at kind of military structures and how um, military is organized, um, the notion of a hierarchical organization where you have self-contained teams um, uh, is very well known. Um, and, and that's partly because of uh, cognitive brain structures in the sense of we know that there's a very famous paper by Miller called The Magical Number Seven Plus or Minus Two, 
which it talks about like, you know, how many digits are in the phone number? Well, it's about what's in short-term memory. And if you look at the, and they've done studies on kind of the cognitive load, because when you're working as a team, it's not just you, it's the model you hold of yourself and all of the other people in the team and all of the relationships that exist within the team and all of the skills. Mm -hmm. So if you and I were to start really working as a team, right? What would happen is I might find through, so taking a step back, a team is a collection of people who have a shared transactional memory system such that the mental models associated with each actor in the team can enable them to reasonably and accurately predict future behavior and rely on those predictions so that they can optimize their own behavior. Okay, so well, there's a, lot, there was a lot in that, Luke. Hold on, so there's, um, so this, this idea that, if I get that, that there's a basic this concept that we are sharing mental models as a group. We're trying to That's rem- right. We're and, trying to remember stuff together, and then we're trying to act on that together as well, right? And and individually and collective. So so you and I start mm. working together, and, and you start to realize, whoa, Luke is pretty good at data modeling, which I am, and I start to realize, whoa, William is really pretty good at identifying risk, and as we learn, we start to rely on that. So mm. you know, we we come into sprint planning or iteration planning, and and when when for whatever reason our scrum master says, does anyone see any risks with the plan? I might stand down and kind of look at you or say, William, what do you think? Because I've learned that you're already better at it than I am. Not in Mm. some like way that demeans me, but a way that celebrates Mm. the competence and capabilities you bring. And those shared transactional memory systems and those mental models, allowing them to form is is so critical, which is why every Agile method, talks about the importance of stable teams because if i don't have a stable team i can't create a, a reasonably accurate mental model of someone else if if i have leadership who's just moving people around um randomly you know by, by the way in sport right it doesn't matter what sport it is if there's a ball that has multiple players on the field we've all seen and it doesn't matter if it's you know whatever sport it is we've all seen what's called the blind pass hmm. How could you do a blind pass? Like people are like, how did, you know, this superstar pass the ball to their mate and they didn't even look? Well, it's because they've practiced the play and they've worked together so long that they had a mental model of what their teammate is going to do Hmm. and their teammate didn't have to tell them. And that model, that mental model was so accurate and so consistent that they pass the ball and it looks like a blind pass and it's, it is, but it's not devoid of a tremendous amount of, of, of encoded knowledge. Yeah. Awareness of each other. It's, it's a, it's an interesting thing to, to, to consider that, well, it's kind of obvious, right? We want to keep teams together in a way so they get to understand each other and get to trust each other and the capabilities that they have. But often in corporate settings, certainly I see that, bring in consultants, bring in contractors, they can move in and out very quickly of the teams, they don't get to understand each other, there's just a fixed amount of time you have to get to know each other. And actually, you know what's saying about five people, my optimum size of team here at Exige is five people, I I don't really like working in team sizes bigger than that. Again, it's very complex, otherwise, emotionally, to to deal with all of it. And um, that size does seem like an optimal size. So you've covered a couple of things there that, um, yeah, I found found really interesting. And maybe that's a link to Agile, really, that um, I'd like to sort of 
just because Luke, you are an agilist. You are somebody who knows about agile. One of the reasons I want you on here. I mean, agile is so popular right now in in the world out there. It's kind of moved from being that geeky software developer thing to becoming much more mainstream. So, I mean, I, I suppose you know, why have you got into agile? What attracted you to it? Because you've been, you know, maybe just talk about your history with agile as well, so people who don't know you. Well. Um, I helped form, so in, a, in kind of a formal sense, from the Agile community perspective, I helped form the first Agile conference in 2003. Um, I remember sitting in Alistair Coburn's home with Ken Schwaber and other people, you know, working on it and celebrating the conference. Todd Little was there. He's another well-known Agilist. I've served on the board of the Agile Alliance. Um, I've run the world's largest webinar on collaboration, collaboration at scale with the Scrum Alliance. Um, it does sound like some then, really cool superhero sort of uh, group, doesn't yeah. it? But it's basically nerds, right? Yeah. We're talking about we're all software nerds doing. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I um, and before the Agile conference, um, you know, I was publishing my you know, my book Journey of the Software Professional came out, I don't know, five years before the manifesto was published and, and six or seven years before the first conference. So I've been aware of, you know, sociology and, and interaction for quite a long time. My training at university was technically I am a geek, right? I have a master's degree in computer science, but I also did cognitive psychology and organizational behavior. And, and I've always been interested in you know, how do we allow individuals to be, you know, fully human and productive? And how do we extend that to teams so that the teams themselves can be who are comprised of people can be fully mm. human and fully productive? Um, so, so, here's, so here's a question for you about this, because it's one I'm yeah. hearing more and more now about Agile. And I'd love your opinion on it, given that you've spent so much time being really, like, in, really important in, in sort of the development of Agile and We'll talk about um, innovation games and how you brought in sort of the ideas and into agile working as well. But is agile more a philosophy or a process in your opinion? Um, it, it, for me, it's an easy, that's an easy uh, answer. Um, um, there's it for me, it's, I wouldn't say it's a philosophy, although if I had to pick between philosophy and process, I'd pick philosophy. I give a talk called agile being versus agile doing so being agile is rooted in the values of the agile manifesto and if you're doing safe we extend it to the values and principles of the toyota production system in lean manufacturing so you know there, there there's a being now the doing of agile well that's scrum and less and dead and safe and those kinds of things and I have found, you know, in my own particular world, I have found great success with SAFE. So I'm an advocate of SAFE. That doesn't mean I'm against other uh, methods, other ways of doing Agile. I just find the doing of SAFE to be aligned um, very closely with uh, results that I find good. Um, For those of the, who, who don't know. Versus doing. So, sorry to interrupt you, Luke. I just want to, for those out there who don't know what SAFE is in the um, Agile world, could you just kind of define the acronym uh, for us? SAFE is the Skilled Agile Framework for the Enterprise, and it is um, the the leading method for or, for large organizations who want to be uh, adopting Agile practices. So um, 
SAFE is really designed for you know more than five teams and is used by the world's largest companies who are trying to become more agile in their practices. Hmm. So um, large banks who might have you know 300, 500 or more dev teams doing you know the various systems that run a bank, they would find uh, scaled agile, the scaled agile framework or SAFE to be effective. Um, but let me give you an example. I'll give you my favorite example from my talk. Um, when people say, you know, is it more of a philosophy or a process? I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to say, um, a mother is someone who can fix the tire on your bike when it goes flat or give you a hug when your heart is broken because your boyfriend or girlfriend just bro broke up with you. And a father is someone who can cook you dinner or can give you a hug when you were scared because there were monsters in your room at night. So we don't ascribe, um, and notice that um, when, we, when we use the words leader, we tend to ascribe being attributes. They're being visionary, they're being supportive, they're being forward thinking, Right. And when we use the word manager, we ascribe doing attributes. They're making budgets and schedules and they're hiring and firing. But when we use other words like mother and father, we have both being and doing attributes. And so the, the challenge is, is that our language still leads us down the path of trying to say that um, agile is either a being or a doing. And the reality is, to me, I am an agilist. That's what I am, which means I am both being and doing. And, and I think that the distinction between being and doing is, is one, of the, uh, one of the more persistent challenges that we have in, in society and in organizations. And yet we don't have that distinction when it really matters in our families, right? Mm -hmm. Fathers are being and doing. Mothers are being and doing. There's a distinguished label because there's certain... Um, responsibilities that we ascribe and certain legal requirements we ascribe to mothers and fathers, right? So there's a label, um, but mm -hmm. but the but the family unit has a being and a doing quality. Yeah, and I do think it's a pain in the ass question. I'm just hearing it come up a lot, and I'm, I'm sorry for asking it, but it's um, no, I, I kind of think it, I think it's probably both in so many ways, isn't it? And I I think maybe from yeah. my, my own experience, it seems that you know being you know a rank amateur when it comes to understanding what agile is about, but um, I've recognize that when you first introduced to agile certainly my experience was okay there's a set of processes you know you've got the stand-ups and you've got the sort of the estimation process you've got kanban you've got scrum you've got all these kind of various components but just applying the processes without kind of embracing the philosophy seems to sort of lose the point of agile because so much of it coming back to some of your earlier points about creating sort of you know, authentic relationships feedback culture um, yeah, I want to push back on that because that that can feel and there is way too much of this in the agile community that feels a little judgmental to me. So part of my background is you pointed out to everyone and and I'll extend it a little bit is I'm a former um, not just a figure skater, but I was actually an aerobics instructor um, and I taught aerobics for more than 10 years and I got the highest level of non-medical certification that you can get with in America, which is a health fitness instructor from the American College of Sports Medicine. So again, living like a weasel, right? If I'm going to teach aerobics, I'm going to go as far as I can, <laughs> short of a medical degree. And so the, 
you know, one of the things I learned and, and I try to bring to our agile world is, you know, let's say that a person is, is for whatever reason, unfit and they start doing the, the, the things that would lead them to fitness, but it's transactional. Like they don't buy into the values of fitness. They're just, they just want to lose weight because they're going to their high school reunion or whatever. That's okay. Right. You, you, you can start agile just by saying, um, I don't care about the values of agile. I just want to get higher quality software out the door in a light in a slightly more reliable manner. Awesome. <laughs> like, awesome. Great. Agile will get you there. Now, what happens is, is that that the the habit that is built by going to the gym suddenly becomes intrinsic. So we move from extrinsic motivation to actual true intrinsic motivation. And people, you know, transactional fitness is um, I had dessert over the holiday season. I'm going to go to the gym to burn off the calories. Uh, intrinsic fitness is I'm a fit person and fit people go to the gym. Hmm. It's independent of what I'm eating because fit people are going to go to the gym regardless of what they're eating. Now, going to the gym gives you the opportunity to have, you know, a dessert or a piece of pie or, you know, a biscuit without worrying about it. But but the, 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 the structure is very different. And it's okay if people are just like, look, I don't care about all those, I, you know, some 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 cigar chomping executive. I don't care about all that human value stuff and agile. I just want higher quality software. Okay. Like, okay. Write your tests, write your automation, get to done, done at the end of the sprint. Great. Yeah, and fair enough. that's okay. Cause I don't, I am personally, and I'm noticing this a little too much right now in the agile community is there is a bit of judgment. Like you're not doing it for the right reasons. Well, first you shouldn't make an assessment or judgment of my reasons. Cause you don't know what my reasons are. And I may not tell you what my reasons are. And that's doesn't that doesn't seem healthy to me to, to, to make assertions about someone's motivations. Um, but it is. But but you but that said, if you can get to that place where you're moving from the, you know, people start with the doing and sometimes they get to the being. And of course, when you get to the being, the doing is hmm. there. But it's OK to be just the doing. I see. I see what you mean. So um, in I suppose when I when I. When I react to it, my, the reason is I think it one really helps the other, and I think the reason I was saying what I did, and I'm, I'm really happy for you to challenge me on it, really. But I, I I know one of the the big issues I see in organisations isn't, you know, I think there's many ways to get stuff done. Whether or not I mean, people say, oh, you know, we can use waterfall, we can be using, you know, agile. There's lots of different ways to get stuff done. The thing I see fall down so much though is the the relationships between people, the the um the integrity, the humility, the the trust, good feedback cycles. And what has struck me about maybe the, the purest component or the philosophical component of Agile is that it builds that in and has this, um, this idea of self-organizing teams of, as you said earlier, really, you know, trusting somebody to be good at something and not be pissed off because they're better than you at it, but because it's great. But um, so I think when you combine the two, they can... They can be, it seems to me anyway, it can be more, but I take your point. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever gets you to. But you can do that combining from a purely economic, non-values driven standpoint. Hmm. I mean, you know, when I have encountered those kinds of leaders in my past, I don't try to, I've done a couple of agile transformations for large companies 
And you can tell pretty quickly that you're working with a leader who just doesn't care about that human side. Okay. You just speak to them differently. Ask them things like, um, how quickly are you releasing software? Uh, what's your bug cycle time, right? What's your bug count? Like, mm. and how much money are you spending on, on, um, uh, support? How much money are you spending on service? What's your net promoter score? You know, what are the facts? Are those facts you're comfortable with? Okay. Mm. Well, let's not worry about how the people are feeling. Let's just go <laughs> ahead and give them opportunities to, to write high quality stuff. Maybe, maybe it's the difference between being a hugger and not being a hugger, right? Maybe that's where there's two people falling. So right, there, and, and I'm not opposed to the hugs. In the <laughs> Lord, in the time of COVID, we could use a hug. Luke's a hugger, um, right? Is that what you're saying? It's right. <laughs> but but you, you, you don't have to start there. And you yeah. certainly shouldn't make um, judgments about mm. someone who isn't doing it that way. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I think um, living a life without judgment is definitely a... Uh, a better way to be because like you're right it's very hard to unpick someone's motivations and you know however we get to the to the water is um doesn't so in some ways doesn't matter as long as we're there and we're we're there together getting stuff done so um okay so we sort of talked a bit about the philosophy and um agile transformation it is being adopted by companies a lot now but i'd, I'd like to sort of i'd like to pivot here a bit into innovation because you know luke you're you're an agilist as you say but you have created an amazing book in um, innovation games, if you don't mind me saying, this sort of gamification and innovation. Um, so I sort of want to talk there because innovation is a big topic for me. It's one of the main places I do my headhunting. So many sex I serve are going through lots of innovation. I just personally love making stuff as well and coming up with ideas. So I'm, I'd love to dig into this a bit with you. So um, how did you come to the idea of playing games to create innovation around products? Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna move into some really precise language because I know that some of the people on this call will will benefit from it. Um, technically, innovation games are not gamification. The gamification community defines gamification as the application of game techniques in a non-game situation to induce a desired behavior. <laughs> so it's a it's more of a manipulation strategy, and I don't like I, I'm not a fan of gamification um it, it's 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 there and there's a lot of powerful psychology behind it but i'm not i'm not a fan of it hmm. um i am a fan of what innovation games are which are serious games and so the only distinction that is material between a serious game and a, and a game for pleasure is that um in a game for pleasure um the outcome in a sense doesn't matter but in a serious game the outcome does and so what we're doing with um uh, innovation games and other serious games, not just innovation games, but there are other ones out there is that we've designed a game where the outcome of the game uh, materially helps uh, solve a, a problem. So for example, um, let's look at portfolio management or prioritization of uh, epics in a portfolio. I could do it in a non-game way just by using ROI of course, people game the ROI in the in not a serious game system, but they manipulate it. Um, I could do a simulation to teach you how to prioritize the portfolio, or I could do participatory budgeting or an innovation game by a feature where it is a game, but the result of the game is, the, in fact, the priorities of the portfolio. So 
so it, when you look at innovation games, right, there are a collection of them and they're designed to solve specific problems, but the ones that are most associated with what people think of as innovation are the set of games that allow you to learn something that you didn't know. So there's the, there's the circle of knowledge, right? There's all knowable knowledge in the universe. There's what you know you know, like you know how you know you know how to drive a car. And then there's what you know you don't know. And I'll give you an example. I know I don't know how to drive a bobsled, but I've seen one on the Olympics, right? But the reality is, is what you know you don't know and what you know you know are actually the same slice of the pie. Because when you say you know you don't know something, that means you do know something about it. You know you don't know it. And what you're really talking, I know it's getting a little crazy, <laughs> but what you're really talking about is that you don't have enough knowledge to take action. Yeah. That's, that's, that's merely acquiring data to take confident action. Okay. What, where innovation lives is putting yourself in the space of what you didn't know you didn't know. And, and then it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's a true discovery, if you will, mm. maybe not for everyone in the room, but for you, it would be because maybe someone else didn't know about it, or, you know, knew about it. But, but the point is, is that innovation games are among the techniques that create really powerful opportunities for people to comfortably and reliably put themselves in a place of what they didn't know they didn't know which is where innovation starts. Okay, okay, cool. We've got a lot to unpack there. So um, I'm going to try and do my best at summarizing all of that, folks, um, just to sort of kind of bring us back so we're clear. So, I mean, I started by saying, you know, gamification of innovation, and I suppose you're, we're right to get aligned because I, I think of gamification can be the where you apply and make something a game in which would otherwise not be considered to be a game or try and apply some game-type mechanic um, get the, the definition you gave us earlier is about gamification would be the idea of adding a incentive-based um, process to a non-game situation to, yeah, and which that may be, for example, like, you know, I need you to, to lose weight. So, well, you know, I'll give you a little star every time you do 5,000 right. steps, right? Um, and and that, that, you know, then you can play a game with that. So I see there's some, there's some definition Subtle. differences. There's right? some subtleties there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I get that. Um, I suppose... Um, well, well, then you talked about serious games, and this is actually something really interesting because, and then you said sort of uh, the serious game is where like the the, out, the outcome matters, and then there's games where they don't really matter. I mean, hey, you tell my kids that any game they're playing seems to bloody matter. So um, you know that's maybe that's the joy of kids, right? Even even tag it, it's life or death. Um, so, but serious games in your idea is this idea we can bring them into, if I understand that bring them into the workplace, for example, and I've got to make a new board game. Let's get serious about that game. It's a serious outcome. We want to achieve a new product design, a new innovation, a new feature around that. Am I correct there? Yeah. Um, yeah okay, absolutely. cool. And then, then you kind of went on to innovation and this circle of knowledge. And I think that's actually some real interesting stuff there. So this, this idea that innovation is getting in a space where you're comfortable working on something where you really don't have any knowledge about the area as such or the what the outcome is going to be. There's a, you don't know what you don't know. 
And that's so, right. And that's where it's so hard for organizations to feel comfortable about this because of the hmm. mechanisms that we use to assess our uh, success. So imagine, imagine you walk up to your boss and you say, say, Hey boss, the program at work is uh, that, you know, the, uh, the, the strategic objective imperative is to be innovative, right? Name a company that doesn't have that, right? And your boss says, yes, that's our, you know, imperative. You know, we want to be innovative. And you're like, great. I want to do this thing. Uh, I want to do this innovation game on Spiderweb, uh, which is one of the ones that's pretty good at identifying what you don't know you don't know. But I want to do this um, uh, activity, this game with our customers called Spiderweb. And your boss is like, sounds great. How many new ideas are we going to get? And you're like, I don't know. It could be none. It could be 20. It depends how much coffee right, is in the room, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right there is where there's this really difficult mm. leap of faith. And there is a leap of faith in innovation. Mm. Putting yourself in that place paradoxically means that you may not come away with anything. Yeah. And, and that is often hard for people to feel comfortable with that I'm going to put myself in a place of, of, of innovation and I may make a, a non-trivial investment. I run a customer advisory board. I go do some research. I do X or Y or Z and I walk away with nothing that I didn't already know. And that mm. could happen. There are, mm. there are times where people are finding that their activities associated with information, innovation are still uh, confirmatory. Like yeah. we haven't found that new thing yet. Okay, well that may be true. So let's let's keep executing, but let's keep trying to find that place where we're where we see things differently. Yeah, it's, it's thought, it's thought, it struck me about this that, that example you give actually, and I, I've often thought that companies are really optimization machines, not innovation machines, particularly when they get to a certain size anyway, because you know ultimately you've got an idea, you've got something that works, and so you're just trying to get as much juice from that lemon as you possibly can, right? And then trying to create something, these innovation functions is it's very, very difficult because it's very different to what the what the organization is doing. Yeah, what, what right. Do you and on that? You know, I have some really dear friends like Alexander Osterwalder of uh, Business Model Generation and Strategizer Fantastic. and yeah. Ben Dye um, of the Corporate Startup and mm. also Strategizer. And they are uh, pretty much the world's leading thinkers on how to help organizations innovate and be comfortable um, because you would think, and, and there are certain organizations and we have to be very careful, right? There are, there are organizations who've been around for quite a while who are clearly finding ways to continue to innovate and, and serve their customers and serve their markets um, from an enduring core with innovative ways to, mm. to, to expand that core. Um, Disney, for example, is one that just popped into my mind, you know, for no other reason than they've been around for a long time. They have a core of characters. And yet when you go to their parks, they innovate and you, you can see technology embedded in different ways and different offers that they have and things that they do. Although I would, so, argue, I would argue with, I, I see your point, but I would argue some, some might say about Disney that they've maybe slowed up on the innovation and had to buy in a lot of their innovation actually because they've become more of an optimization. Well, that's issue. true too. Yeah. Um, but, however, that can be a strategy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the Bay Area where I live, um, 
people are pretty comfortable with accepting that Cisco doesn't do a lot of um, innovation. Mm-hmm. Their strategy is to acquire it. Yeah. And that's yeah. okay. Like if, if it's part of your core. And so what are they good at? Right. That sounds like a really, that sounds like a, a at best a backhanded compliment, if not a criticism. And that's <laughs> no, no, not, it's not meant, yeah. You right? gotta know what I mean, you're, yeah. What, what Cisco does better than anyone in the Bay area is they acquire companies. Like if you get acquired by Cisco, it, they know how to bring you in, treat you right, build out the channel, grow the product. And, and I, I know several entrepreneurs who have been acquired by Cisco and are happier than you can imagine because their response is, I could have never had this level of success, impact, reach without Cisco behind me. I am so happy I got acquired by Cisco. It's, it's usually, there's, there's very few unhappy acquisitions with Cisco because they know how to acquire. And that's just part of their innovation strategy. There, there's an interesting point because I do see so many companies struggling with this component. It's like, do we build the innovation team inside? Do we acquire? Um, and maybe that's the point. You've got to know what you're good at and choose a route. You know, maybe you do, you know, you kind of start to pioneer with see these, these speedboat teams and these innovation units. And then you try to create the, the architecture that allows you to create and then sort of plant in, in these optimization units within your business. Uh, or you do it like the other way you said, you just go out and acquire and then get really good at, at integrating them. We, we have got off off a beautiful tangent to some extent, but I would love to ask you then, because I was going to ask you about this idea of why does play seem to give us more innovation juice to squeeze? Because that's what I think I think of your games. Oh, that- that, that, that's, uh, um, you get a prize because that's the question that people should ask, but they never really do. Um, um, there's Woo-hoo, a couple there of reasons. price for William, yeah, yeah. a margarita, really send me a margarita, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you get one for free, um, but that's a really deep question. So, so the question is why does play, um, do this? Well, there's a couple of things, um, um, play, uh, to, to play means I put myself into a mental or physical space or a, a mental and physical space in which I voluntarily choose to achieve a goal through a different set of rules. Hmm. And by, by doing that, I automatically position my mind and my body to, to think differently or behave hmm. differently. So I often joke when I'm teaching classes, you know, and I, 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 I take a, a football and I hold it in my hand and I say, on this side of the line, I can touch it with my hands. I step across the line and on this side of the line, I can't. I have to kick it with my feet, right? Now, there's nothing that other than I chose to do that. Like there's literally nothing other than a mental space by a white line. There's no natural law. It's not like gravity. It's not like, you know, there's, it was a choice. And so the, the reason that we get such better results through play is because you create a physical space. I had... Um, a society general, the bank in in, in France, uh, Rackspace, right? One of the mistakes corporates make when they want to be innovative is they're like, we're going to put in an innovation program. We're going to be innovative. Well, if you're innovative everywhere, you're by definition innovative nowhere. Because to be innovative, I have to think differently. And if I don't have a mental or physical space that I can go to to think differently, I cannot, in fact, be different. So saying I'm innovative at my cube doesn't cut it. 
what you need is um, at Rackspace, they created Racktivity rooms and at Society Generale, they created special rooms where you could go and you would have the materials for innovation games and you could play. But now I had a space I could leave my cube where I'm, you know, optimizing and doing my thing. I go to this other space and now the rules are different mm. because the space is different. Mm. And, you know, my space for play is uh, often when I'm running because I still want to maintain my fitness. So when I have a hard problem, I'll go for a run. And that gives me the physical and mental um, opportunity to think different. Hmm. So I hear from that then this idea of, and the, the example you were giving was, is football here, right? So you, you, you create sets of rules, a different playing field. You step onto that field and there are a new set of rules by which to play so that it gives you some structure to express yourself, but you have a mindset and you know how to act and you come off that pitch and you know that, you know, someone chucks you something, you can catch it with your hands. And so it's this idea of creating, if I hear that, a set of an environment in which you can express yourself safely, knowing what to do. Differently, safely. Yeah. It's not just expressing myself, it's expressing myself differently and differently. being safe about the expression of those differences. Hmm. What do you think about the motivation that's intrinsic with play as well? Because when I think about playing, I certainly don't think, oh, no, I've got to play. Although sometimes if I've got to play another board game that with my Monopoly or something, that does kill me. But um, some games I love playing, sometimes I don't, right? So that's kind of motivation as well. Yeah, so, so motivation leads you down the path of fun. And fun isn't a quality of a game. It's, the, it's a quality of the relationship that you have to a particular game. Mm. So um, I, what we call uh, shoots and ladders, I think you call snakes and ladders. Snakes and ladders, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not fun for an adult. We do it because it socializes and it gives us time with our kids. But it's not mm. like if I come over and we were to have a margarita, you'd be like, hey, let's crack out. <laughs> you, know, you might say, hey, let's crack out Monopoly or let's crack out Scrabble. Let's do D&D &D with some that, margaritas. Yeah, that might be kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, because that's intrinsically fun because yeah. the game itself is an interesting game and it has it we choose, we, we find it fun. And, you know, I, I joke when I'm uh, teaching again, some, some people think it's enjoyable and rational to whack a ball with a stick and try to knock it in a hole. Um, <laughs> you know, when any rational person could just go put the ball in the hole with their hands if they felt like it. Mm. Right. So golf is this crazy thing. Mm. And, and so, so the relationship that you have to a particular game is personal and what's interesting is that some of the most enduring games are the ones that seem to have the right combination of of constraints resources rules interactions collaborations that make it um worthwhile card games um scrabble and humans love to play i mean you know there there are thousands of games mancala is considered one of the earliest games ever and it's at least 3500 years old mm -hmm. Yeah, there is something about play that, and I, I know it's very hard and difficult to define. Um, and I, I agree with you that not always does play have to be in totally enjoyable um, because there are sort of when I'm, you know, if you're being playful, there are just some things you've got to sort of go through and do, but there's a, maybe an outcome that you enjoy. I mean, certainly anybody who's played football or 
played rugby or played any sport knows that in the last 10 minutes of a game, it's not really that much fun because you're probably dying on the field and you just want to go inside and get warm and it's just killing you. But you've got to stay on the pitch to get that last goal or to do that last try or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting association we have with enjoyment to play um, and, and maybe, you know, could, could warrant some further exploration at some point. Um, but you know what? I, I want to get on to talking about because i think one thing that really strikes me about you luke is that you know purpose is in sort of what you want to do and you're going to go after it like a weasel you're going to get fully into it um which i find really you know really inspiring right so i'm and but you're on to something next right so purpose in work is is a kind of a hot topic um and i know purpose is important to you so you're onto your next company, Tilladen, and it seems to be more than just a company. So why don't you tell us about what you're doing at the moment and what you're up to? I'd love to. Uh, well, first, I'm going to start with the name uh, Tilladen. It's derived from the Danish word of trust, Tillid, uh, which is a meaning of trust that doesn't quite exist in English. And it's, it's, it, it has shades of economic um, mutual benefit. So, so trust in, in, in Tillit is our, our community or our society is benefiting economically by trusting each other. And I find that uh, beautiful. And when I was thinking about this, you know, I was, you know, of course, you, you check the domain names and there's Tillit. And of course, that's taken. But the singular possessive of Tillit is Tilladen, which means all inclusive. And I just checked out of the whim and it was free. So I took it and GoDaddy, and nice. I'm like, that's my sign. Like that's, this is the new thing I have to latch onto. So, so there's a couple of foundational parts of this. Um, um, I read a book by some Brits actually called the spirit level. And it talks about the, the harmful effects of inequality in a society. So the more unequal the society the worse the society's health outcomes. So America is the world's most unequal society. Sadly, the UK is right is not close behind, and then there's Australia. And if you look at really fundamental measures of health, like infant mortality rates, obesity, um, drug and opiate addiction, uh, longevity, mental health, in all, in every single area, the more unequal the society, the worse the society does. Hmm. And so one of the contributing factors of, of inequality is um, financial inequity and financial illiteracy. So then the question becomes, how do we teach financial literacy? I have a background in educational technology. And one of the things that we know about teaching kids is that you want to create what's called an authentic experience or an authentic question. Instead of telling the kids what to do, you want to create an opportunity where they construct knowledge through something that's motivating to them, not motivating to the teacher or the parent. Maybe well, playful. All yeah, maybe playful, buttons. right? Maybe playful. playful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and playful. So <laughs> you roll all those together and you yeah. end up with a technique that I've been, I brought to the Agile community um, but I, but has been practiced in the public sector for a while called participatory budgeting. And participatory budgeting is where a community collaboratively determines how to invest a shared budget. And it always goes through five phases. 
in phase one, there's some thematic structure about kind of what's important to us or where do we want to go. In phase two, we apply design thinking and we create ideas. It's divergent thinking. It's, you know, creating ideas and proposals. In phase three, we are shaping those proposals into something that could potentially be funded. For example, when we have done this in schools, sometimes the kids will create great ideas, but they're just outside the budget. So that's where you're looking at things like, is this feasible? You know, how many kids would benefit? Does the school benefit or is it just a subset of the school? And in phase four, you are collaboratively choosing the ideas that you're going to implement. And in phase five, you're actually funding and implementing the ideas themselves. And notice that there's a, there's a distinction between this is what I want to do versus this is what I'm funding. Because in the funding phase, you're roping back into teaching financial literacy, right? It, it's teaching how a budget works in a, in a, in a way that is meaningful and our tagline for the company is trust the community. And in this case, when we're dealing with the school, it's trust the kids. And, and adults often say things like, well, you know, what are the kids going to pick with the money? They're going to pick a party. Well, they never do, right? If you actually look at the data of schools that have done participatory budgeting, kids pick amazing ideas that are they control um, that the adults never would have thought of, but are always sensible and wonderful in, mm. in once you see what they do. So Tilladin is designed to bring participatory budgeting to schools around the world. And our BHAG, which stands for Big, Hairy, mm -hmm. Audacious Goal, is uh, a tagline that we've created, 1K1M1B. We want to put $1,000 into a million schools globally and watch what happens. This is the game part because we don't know what's going to happen. Watch what happens when kids around the world are controlling at least a billion dollars of capital without the interference of adults. <laughs> I would love to see that happen. So, wow, what a cool thing. So if I um, summarize that then, so, so Tilladin is, is this idea, Danish word for trust. Um, and you'd recognize that in communities in society as a whole um inequality drives poor outcomes for people and you particularly isolated around their you know particularly poor financial literacy um and is one of the drivers to inequality certainly so how are we going to as a community as a society going to make our societies more equal more fair well let's teach kids how to be more financially responsible not only for themselves, but within the communities they operate within. So you've got this focus and taking the idea that you've got from your agile work in participatory budgeting, you're going to try and teach children through the course of Tilladin and using Tilladin, which are people you'll tell us about what is it, what it is, um, to manage their own finances, to see their decision making in action, to take ownership, understand how budgets work, how cooperation and and organization works to then help schools also, I suppose, fund themselves, right? So was that a good summary of sort of what, where you're kind of- Absolutely, that's, awesome. that's a fantastic summary. And, you know, I have seen magic happen and, you know, this notion of participatory budgeting is cross-cultural. 
I've done participatory budgeting in Bogota, Colombia, in in London, in Poznan, Poland, in Elat, Israel, in Singapore, in New Zealand, in in Australia, uh, uh, in Sweden. I mean, you you pick places and and you see this notion of of participatory budgeting because people want to have that involvement, and it it just the particular focus of Tilladin is the magic that occurs in schools and and you can imagine how awful it is for kids to walk into a you know a finance class or a business class and be given these awful word problems like you know bob and and jane want to go to the store they have 10 pounds and apples are you know you know you know 1 pound 50 <laughs> they're getting more expensive you know, yeah. how, you know, how many, how many apples can they buy? I mean, it's just awful. Mm. And, but you convert that into, you know, in one project we did, the, the, the kids decided that they wanted to get a 3D printer and they're like, okay, we want a 3D printer. And of course, as adults, we said, great, it's your idea. How much does it cost? And of course, as a, as a father, you know that when the kids get inspired by something, they'll learn all about it. So they came back and they knew everything there was about 3D printers. You can get a cheap one that won't last. You could get an industrial strength one that we can't afford. Hmm. And then we can get this one. And then, of course, you're teaching them. You say, okay, you've got the printer. Did you consider the supplies as part of the budget? Hmm. Oh, we have to consider supplies. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. And so the kids are learning, but it's authentic knowledge that they care about and not something you're telling them to learn. But they're learning, okay, what is a budget? And what's the, you know, and now we can add all of our adult terms. We can say, you know, the capital printer is a, ca you know, they, the, the, I'm sorry, the 3D printer is a capital expense and the supplies are an operating expense. I mean, we can add all that crap. But the point is, is that the kids are now learning on their own terms for mm. their own reasons and they are intrinsically motivated to figure that out. It sounds playful as well, doesn't it? I mean, I know as a kid, I would love to have bought a 3D printer for the school. Um, I probably would have come oh, up yeah. with some other like wacky stuff as well. But um, I can see what you're doing. It's sort of creating a, a structure. Now, I mean, I, I've had the, you know, the, the privilege of looking through your kind of pitch deck and sort of so, but um, just to tell people the way that they do this, way that the mechanism you're using is an app, which allows like a wallet or a, a debit card where children can spend their money right and that also contributes to the school do you want to just fill us in a little bit on this i think it's such a cool way of doing it so yeah please yeah so there's a couple of things that are going on um we're going to open source our software we're, we're working a little bit to figure out our architectural spikes so the the team is doing a little atypical sprinting right we're doing one week sprints and each sprint is super focused on learning and you had a friend of mine guy duncan on your show a little bit ago giving mm. a shout out to mr duncan oh yeah and, uh, you know, he's one of our advisors. And so we're spending a lot of time because we're a new team and we're building out knowledge of each other on a brand new tech stack to experiment. So we're doing architectural spikes where the, you know, there's a phrase in Silicon Valley that we sometimes use called, are you, are, you know, build the learn or build the earn. And on this phase, we're building the learn, um, but we are building an app. And uh, the and PB Scotland Scott is a great website for a lot of interesting participatory budgeting work done in Scotland, but it's all too hard right now. I our, one of our hypotheses is that the reason people don't do participatory budgeting more in schools is because it's so hard. 
Hmm. You, you, there's no software, there's no solutions. You got to figure out how to do it on your own. And what they give the kids is really ugly and really boring and it's not designed for a kid. So it, it doesn't look like Snapchat or Discord or Instagram. It, it doesn't match anything that they're used to. And so we're building this beautiful app um, that kids can use and we're gonna open source it. If, mm. if, um, and, and we're gonna you know, let schools use it uh, for free if they want or if they wanna you know, use our service, they'll pay a nominal amount to, to help keep the service up and running. Um, but it, it is an app because that's that's what our kids are doing, right? You have to meet yeah. your customers where they are. In this case, the customers are the kids. So I understand it. And so we're gonna, so Tilden is going to be creating this participatory, participatory budgeting. I'm sort of really struggling with that one. Um, get, get, my, get my teeth in for that one. We, yeah. we in, the, in the participatory budgeting community, participatory. we often just say PP. Okay, let's just PP. Let's call it PP. Otherwise, I'm going to continue to trip over that one. Um, <laughs> so you're going to give them this, this this software platform to do that. So the kids benefit from learning how to spend money, all of the processes that go into budgeting and creating stuff. They also get to like feel engaged in their school's decision making. The school benefits, though, because the school's getting cash to spend on stuff it needs, right? And let's face it, folks, even in England, I'm sure it's exactly the same in the US, schools are terribly funded, um, don't have enough money, and, and you know, PTAs, parent as teacher associations or PAs here, um, PTFAs, I haven't got that. They're, they're really responsible for meeting the gap. So you'll be creating money going into the schools, kids being able to spend it, schools win, kids win, and you're going to try and create the the playground, the play field, which will allow that all to happen, right? That's going to be where. Right, and, and ideally in the, in the long run, society wins. And so when you look at, you know, the measures of success, um, it's one measure one measure, it's not a measure of success, but one measure is how much money gets pumped through the program. Mm. But what's surprising is that you can give the kids a relatively small amount of money because in their mind, it's really large and get all of these benefits. So it's not, you go to adults and they're like, oh, my school needs a million pounds. Well, that may be true, but you don't need a million pounds for the kids to learn. You could give the kids a thousand pounds and they would learn just as much. Mm. That's, our, that's what our data shows. So what's interesting about that is you can scale very quickly because the amount of money that we're talking about is actually relatively small mm. on a per school basis to, to create these results. But the societal benefit are things like kids who go through this program now understand how to manage money and they can work on the larger things like what is their credit score, which is a part of our modern society. Mm. It, they have to know what their credit score is over time. You know, your 12-year-old son, he doesn't need to know his credit score, but in 10 years, he sure will. Hmm. And so how are we preparing our children? Um, uh, you know, in America, I can't speak to the UK, but in America, when a child becomes 18, because two of my kids have now aged into the young adult, they are no longer, in a sense, protected by their parents. And so the banks descend on them like vultures over a dead rabbit. And the, they're inundated with credit card offers. And so kids in America, uh, when they graduate college, are graduating with an average of $7,000 in credit card debt. Oh, my God. Because mm. we don't teach them how to manage money. The credit card companies descend on them with mm. all of the worst kind of psychological advertising. Get what you want now. Don't worry mm. about paying for it. They make a ton of money on uh, bank fees and credit card fees. 
and they leave kids walking out the door already in the hole of debt. And that's part of the societal structure that we're trying to change with Tilladin. You know, I'm not saying credit cards are intrinsically bad. There are, there are times where, you know, a, a, a credit or a loan is appropriate, but that has to be a choice based on um, a cognitive awareness of what you're choosing, not I was seduced through something I didn't understand from a, from a bank that just frankly makes more profit from illiterate people than literate people. Yeah, hey, I get that. Absolutely. I wish somebody would have taught me um, more about you know, how to manage budgets, how to spend money more effectively as an early point. So I can absolutely see the benefit of this. And, you know, it's increasingly um, liberal credit streams appear um, to children who don't know how to use them effectively. But what, that, that's, that's the problem. And so, again, what we're doing, I suppose, I hear from you that you're creating safe spaces for play, which allow kids to develop understanding which helps everybody in sort of that process. That's really cool. I, I love the idea. So um, how, how um, where are you at with this at the moment? So you're sort of, you're going for- your, Where are we at? Yeah. Um, we, um, well, if people hit our website, www.tilladin.com, they'll find that there's just a simple landing page. But hopefully by the time this uh, goes live, um, you know, we're taping it today, but when it goes live, yeah. the website will be developed. I have some small investors, but some famous investors. So I mentioned Alexander Osterwalder, who's a friend of mine. He's actually an investor. Nice. Um, there's a few other uh, uh, very famous people. Vern Harnish is known uh, for scaling companies. Um, so we're, we've we've attracted a little bit of um, uh, angel capital, uh, partly because the angels that I've talked to, they know this problem exists and they know it's material for society to fix. Um, we're, we're in the process of doing agile the way that I like to do agile, which is we've kind of done a UX experience of a light flow of the whole app. And now we're usability testing it. We're spiking lots of architecture and we're starting to build things out. Um, so hopefully we'll launch in sometime in September um, and the only thing that's really holding us back from launch, and this is going to sound negative and it's not meant to be, is making sure we're fully compliant with all of the proper laws. So we're building mm -hmm. in compliance into our process of, you know, GDPR compliance, uh, COPA compliance, which is the Child Online Privacy Protection Act in the United States, um, making sure that parents are very comfortable. So we're user mm -hmm. testing with parents mm -hmm. um, because the, the brand means trust. And if we aren't compliant and uh, you know there's I, I tell my team right there's the there's the letter of the law but we don't care about the letter of the law we care about the spirit of the law and we right. will be compliant with the spirit of the law because if you're compliant with the spirit of the law the letter of the law will um follow i like to i like to tell my people imagine what the social media companies would do and probably do something different <laughs> Uh, look, I've been I've been privileged to watching some of the ways that you're structuring the company and where you're building stuff out, and I've been you know genuinely I've been really impressed by the way you're doing it, and I can see the you know the deep expertise in in methods like Agile coming to play there, and you know your experience in building software, so it's pretty quite impressive. So people people out there, I mean, I'm I'm in the names you referenced are great advocates. So um, I'm personally going to be really excited to see how I can support you and you know get involved and put some put some money towards you guys as well because I I agree it's. Uh, it's a really cool thing well, that you're doing. Soon, William, uh, one of the things that I know you're alluding to is 
we're planning on a GoFundMe um, to launch. Um, and I thought it'd be like, hey, let's let's launch a GoFundMe. Uh, but I didn't know anything about that. So I contacted <laughs> some people who do. Like one of our corporate values is seek help. Like people don't seek help enough. So I'm like, hey, let's do a GoFundMe. And I found a person who's fairly skilled at it. And they're like, um, you really can't start a GoFundMe when you don't even have a website. So how about we do a few things that would, you know, because if someone gets excited about your idea, what are they going to do, Luke? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess they can't talk to me. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. But um, so we're going to do a GoFundMe. Um uh, and hopefully we launch that sometime in the next few months, but I'm learning that there's a few and it's, it's kind of shockingly obvious, but there's some shockingly obvious precursors that I have to be able to, like, we need an FAQ of what the offering is. And, sure. you know, teachers have concerns, like teachers have concerns, like, um, you know, do I do this during the class or do I do this after class? And parents have concerns about, you know, what is the data and, uh, you know, uh, low income or minority mm. kids have concerns like I don't have a smartphone. How do I do this? And so what we've come to realize is we we're going to do a GoFundMe, but we do have a little bit of work to do to help um, um, manage this. I would only invite people if they haven't connected to me on LinkedIn or, or don't follow me on Twitter. I'm, I'm easy to find on social media at Luke Homan, but I write every day now about uh, Tilladen. I'm yeah. posting every day. Um, sometimes the good, sometimes the disappointment, but, um, um, welcome to being <laughs> associated with a startup. Yeah. Well, hey Luke, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm, anybody listening out there, you know, who's hearing what Luke's saying, you don't have to wait for the GoFundMe. If you are genuinely interested and sure someone's got, wants to get involved in some angel round, they could always reach out to you as well. Couldn't they to have some oh gosh, talk yes. about it? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Round, um, I'll give you a true story that that shocked me and my wife. Um, I've been going through my LinkedIn for people who are um, who meet the profile of what an angel investor would be, but I'm and I'm connected to them, but I may not be as close as I am with other people. So I sent a note to a woman, Jennifer, and I said, "Hey, Jennifer, you know we we met that was years ago, but I'm working on this new thing that I actually think you'd be interested in." And she replied, I'm extremely interested in this. I'm, you know, she's a senior director of product management at Google. And she said, you know, I, I, I see that this is important. You know, tell me more. And we exchanged emails over a couple of weeks. And then she invested in the company as an angel. And I went to, to my wife and I said, you know, I'm kind of surprised. I offered more than once to, you know, have a phone call with her or meet her in person. And she's like, no, it's good. You know, I know who you are. I, I've seen your work over the decades in the Agile community. I trust you completely. Mm -hmm. And I believe in this idea. And she joined as an angel. So it's, it, was, it was quite humbling um, yeah. because you realize that people are starting to figure out that we cannot keep progressing as a society with massive economic disparity. That is just not good. And this is an an attempt to address that. Yeah. Hey. Absolutely. And um, so, guys, don't don't hesitate to reach out if um, you want to have a chat with Luke. He's available on, on LinkedIn and, and many other 
many other popular social media platforms. So um, you can certainly have a chat with him there. Um, Luke, kind of, you know, recognizing time, man, I, I will kind of start wrapping up, but I, 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 this is a question I'd love to ask you is like, um, what are your favorite three books? Because like, you know, I had some great ones from Guy Duncan and I'm hoping you're going to be able to live up to that. But um, yeah, go on, go on. What are your oh. favorite three books? And it could be anything. You can give us a business book. You can say your yeah, own book, yeah, yeah. whatever you want to um, do. Well, I mean, I have so many books in my office um, and so many books I've read over the years. Um, I'm, I'm going to give you one that's easy if people know me, and that's the Mythical Man Month, which I think is one of, is probably the best book ever written about software development. Um, Mythical Man Month, is that right? The Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks. Um, Fred Brooks. Um, but a, a book that I always give as an answer because I love it so much is uh, understanding comics by Steve McLeod, which I think is just wonderful. Understanding um, comics by Steve McLeod. Understanding comics by Steve McLeod, I think is just fantastic. And so, since you limited, you asked me for three, I could give you three hundred. <laughs> um, but I'm going to try, and I'm just going to glance. Um, what you, uh, yeah, what, what I can you, see understanding comics. You know, you know on my bookshelf um, Luke, Luke's showing a, a book to camera at the moment for so for all of those yeah. out there without you know we're only audio but um yeah I saw that <laughs> what what would be a, another like what's really... your favorite do you have like a non do you have like a fiction book you enjoy or something that's like a well, what you, what so you read my for wife last? and I have this thing where we read fiction books to each other for fun um because yeah. everyone likes to book read aloud so we're and we usually read like not anything super fantastic um i guess is it one that you've read more than once to each other no no because they're usually kind of silly and fun <laughs> um let's see i'm gonna give one that's super super deep um and it was from a person that i worked with at university um and if you want to read one of the deepest books ever in terms of theory and and just amazing stuff it's by Carl Weick, K-A-R-L Weick, W-E-I-C-K. And it's the social psychology of organizing. And it is one of the most profoundly thorough and deep um, books about organizational behavior and organizational structure written by a man who was named one of the top 100 organizational behaviorists of the last century. Hmm. Um, and that book is really incredible. So it's like the social psychology of organizing, is that right? By Carl White, yeah. Carl White, wonderful. And under, un understanding comics, you mentioned as well. So yeah. that's about understanding how comics are written, I presume, or what? what is that one about? Yes. You should get it. You'll love it. Okay, awesome. Understanding comics. And then the Mythical Man Month. That's one on the... Yeah, that's, that's where Brooks created and um, published, among other things, Brooks Law, which is adding programmers to a late project makes it later. <laughs> that's cool. Okay, awesome. So three cool books. There's some ones, big ones to, to dive off on. Um, Luke, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. I, I always get something from talking to you, a uh, sort of deep well of expertise and knowledge around agile and innovation and being a good human being. 
Um, thank you very much for what you're trying to do with uh, Tilladin as well. I think that's a really cool, cool thing to be doing. Well, and I so again, um, anybody who wants to find you, go out there on social media, um, have a look at what Luke's doing. And I would always recommend um, if you're looking to create new things using checking out Innovation Games, it is a really, really cool book. I loved it. So Luke, thank you so much. Thank you so much, William. I really appreciate it. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.